You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we'll speak with two asset allocators, one with a multifamily office and the other with an ETF-only allocation service for investors. Both have a great deal of experience across many asset classes during many markets, and we'll talk about the current market dynamics and infrastructure of trading and where it's headed. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Today is Wednesday, November 25th, and this is James Perron with CASA. This is Alternative Thinking. Today we have Rob Duncan with Four Strong Global Asset Management and Stephen Adang with Anchor Pacific Investment Management. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Steve. Hi, James. Uh, thanks for having me today. And um, yeah, it's always good to, to do these things and uh, very much looking forward to it. Uh, so uh, Anchor Pacific is, uh, we're out in Western Canada in Vancouver, and uh, we function as an outsource chief investment office um, that provides discretionary and advised services for families. Uh, uh, and we work with other asset allocators um, and asset owners with respect to their portfolio construction, uh, risk analytics, um, and manager and strategy selection. Very cool. So... Yeah, you say outsource chief investment officer. Does that include like you're doing actual asset management there or do you do a lot of uh, like farming out to external managers? Uh, so the, the outsource chief investment officer model as you know, we feel um, in its rust form needs to be is, is one that is pure open architecture. So, um, so that is primarily uh, externally managed uh, strategies uh, that, you know, there may be some, um, you know, some internal capabilities. I mean, if you think about, you know, kind of how Yale uh, runs their endowment office um, and, and some of these other firms, right. Um, mm-hmm. Or organizations, I should say, uh, you know, I think uh, Yale in particular does their, their fixed income in house, but everything else is done through third party managers. And, and so for us, it's, it's very much the, the same model. Um, the, uh, you know, the resources to do things internally, um, versus, uh, you know, really kind of adding value in, you know, manager and strategy selection and how you integrate all those parts together. So, um, uh, you know, and really being able to, uh, operate, uh, across the full spectrum of asset classes from liquid to, Ill- to illiquid public to private um, with, you know, uh, really being unconstrained uh, to geography, um, you know, really that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the highest possible benefit. Um, you know, when you think about the laws of, of active management where, um, you know, effectively breadth uh, and, and really increasing your opportunity set, uh, casting a wide as net as possible to find, you know, those right combination of, of skill-based managers to put together. So that's what we operate around. And uh, so it's not based on any type of, um, you know, products or, or anything that we would internally generate ourselves. Cool. So you cast a wide net. That's, uh, that's excellent. So, so it, when it comes to the asset mix, are you, 
Um, what's kind of your typical asset mixes, if there is one, and how much would you have, say, in the, the private realm, uh, like specifically like offering memorandum stuff or close-end funds versus the more public market uh, prospectus-based funds or, or uh, you know, publicly traded securities? Yeah, that's a great question. Since we don't uh, manage any uh, any large pooled product and everything is, uh, you know, subject to an individual, you know, investment policy statement with some form of, of segregated account, uh, a lot of that will change uh, or will be specific to the particular client. Uh, but what I will say is that, you know, individuals generally don't have the right uh, combination of size and really long, uh, almost kind of call it infinite time horizon to really uh, capture uh, the illiquidity premiums that are uh, available in the true private markets. And so within those true closed end, you know, structures where you're really not likely to get your capital back, you know, from anywhere from from eight to 15 years. So where we do uh, most of our focus, where we spend most of our time is, is within the public markets. Uh, and that would uh, certainly include marketable alternatives, which is how we choose to view them as opposed to differentiating, you know, between uh, whether something is a quote unquote liquid alt or whether it's uh you know, OM or prospectus-based or, or subject to some other uh, regulatory regime. So, you know, from, from the standpoint of a, you know, of a balanced portfolio, what would traditionally have been, um, you know, considered a 60-40 uh, portfolio, uh, I would say, you know, the separation is probably about um, a third passive versus two-thirds active. Uh, and, you mm -hmm. um, you know, and within that active, uh, a lot of that would be, um, you know, considered alternative uh, uh, in, uh, I guess, in, in the broadest sense of its uh, definition. So, you know, that's, you know, hedge funds, um, which are, you know, really more labels, uh, you know, but, uh, but still how the world uh, tends to view a lot of those allocations. And, um, you know, and, 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 and some style tilts, uh, but, but really it's, it's finding, um, you know, active managers that, uh, that can add alpha as well as uh, provide, um, you know, true uh, risk diversification and, you know, properties of non-correlation, so on and so forth. Very cool. How about you, Rob? Uh, what have you been doing the last, last few years with Forstrong and uh, your value proposition for your clients? Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, it's not too dissimilar from what, what Steve's been talking about. So Forstrong Global is an asset manager uh, with offices in Kelowna and Toronto. Uh, we've got clients uh, all across the country and, and across different client segments. So we, we do have institutional clients, we've got retail clients, and we do have some private clients. Uh, but the, the primary focus is, you know, we call ourselves, you know, global macro or active macro. You know, mm -hmm. But from our perspective, we're, we're unlike most traditional global macro shops that people are familiar with when people hear macro they typically think more quantitative uh, and for us it's uh, we're top-down qualitative uh, macro shops so we're probably best known for our etf portfolios and when creating a portfolio for clients whether it be you know retail institution retail or institutional and you know, we kind of look at it as, as there's two separate layers uh, where you could potentially insert active management to try and generate or create a desired outcome. And most people would, would create more of a static allocation to a particular asset class 
and then find a very active manager to fulfill that bucket. And we take a bit of a different view and you know, it can be unpopular at times. We simply recognize that for a particular asset class, for an active manager, mm-hmm. meeting their desired benchmark or stated benchmark, it's not impossible. It's just difficult. And statistically, it's, it's against their favor when you net out of fees. So for us, instead of being very active within one particular asset class, we step up a level uh, using you know, purely index-based uh, ETFs, and we're very active within our asset allocation. And for us, you know, we use a couple of different key themes when we actually put portfolios together. And a lot of our allocations are generated from uh, forecasting what we call super trends, kind of where we see the economy's uh, driving returns over the next five plus years. Uh, from there, we'd, we'd get more into the, the kind of qualitative aspect of it. Uh, where are we with valuations? Where are we with policy? Uh, where, where do we think we are within the cycle? And then the more active part of the components would be more investor behavior and psychology. Um, and realistically, we're very global in nature. We're very active in nature. And we, we kind of drill down between selecting you know, countries over companies and then digging into you know, sectors, themes, as well as currency management. So that's, that's very broadly a quick overview of kind of how we'd, we'd create our portfolios. Uh, but again, from our perspective, you know, we're very unlike traditional global macro is we're long only, we're ETF only. Uh, our desired outcome is, is very stable and predictable returns. Some people would call that boring. But for me, I, I think it's, it's kind of what's, what's desired by a lot of investors, particularly given the year that we've had. Yeah, I think a lot of people, like when I was going to school, like it was in 92 and the Soros had, had beaten the pound, made a billion pounds or euros or whatever was going on at the time. And uh, you know, so that when I think of Glow Macro, I think of him or Hugh Hendry, um, who they have these outlandish bets. And uh, you know, Hugh, Hugh has a quote that he said to me in one, one of the conferences, he goes, you know, our, our, as a global macro manager, our franchise is absurdity. We think of these crazy things and we put, put trades on and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But um, it sounds like you guys have a, a bit, is, is, would you say yours is, is more systematic and purely quant driven or, or is there a level of discretion or discretionary overlay that you have uh, when you create kind of your, your worldview and where you want to be, what, what sort of sandboxes you want to be in and then using ETFs to get that exposure? Yeah, so kind of like I said, we're, we're non-traditional global macro. Most people think of macro as, as taking outsized or outlandish bets or purely quantitative, systematic uh, in nature. That, that's not us. We're much more qualitative in nature. We do have a, a quantitative input as, as part of the portfolio, but it's really not a, a key or, or core driver. For us, it's, it's realistically, well, most, like most of our peers on Bay Street, 90% of our peers on Bay Street, are looking into a particular company, breaking it down, looking at its balance sheet, its financial statements, trying to figure out where growth is going to come from. Instead of doing that for, for a single company, we'll actually do that for countries. Like what is driving growth or returns within a country? And then from there, is it being pushed by one particular sector or one theme? And that's where we'd make the overall allocation. So we, we try and reduce the idiosyncratic risk of single security selection to focus on what's driving the biggest, the biggest core part of that return, which arguably, I mean, we can... You know, point to a lot of different reports or, or studies in time, you know, where uh, we would argue that the majority of returns is going to come from uh, your overall asset allocation, then up next would be your, your style bet. And then from there, it's your, your, the smallest component would be your alpha component, which would stem from security selection or even security timing. So Rob, what's your baseline in terms of, are you, are you operating out of, uh, out of a 60-40 framework and, 
and, and working off that baseline? Are you targeting uh, are you targeting a specific uh, risk metric like uh, you know it could be simple standard deviation of a return or or max drawdown? Like uh, how, you know how are you kind of starting uh, the, the process of, of building a, a, a macro based portfolio? Yeah, that's actually a really good question, Steve. So. Uh, if you look at the, the strategies that we offer, so we have we have nine strategies uh, across the firm, six of which I'd say are much more solutions uh, oriented or structured, I guess you could say. We've got a, a core series and a global series. The core series has been around for forever. Um, and the, the concept behind it is that roughly half of its content is, is mandated to be in Canada. The other half is going to be global oriented. And this kind of stems from a lot of our early clients back in the day that were traditionally financial planners or advisors that wanted a one ticket solution. So it kind of mandated that we had Canada in there. Um, within, within those two series, we do kick out three separate risk buckets. Uh, it would be income oriented, balance oriented and growth oriented. And within that framework, we do have some pretty wide ranges that we can play with. But there's, the, the ranges also restrict us that we can't get, we can't be 100% cash or 100% gold. People are going to know generally what, what this is going to look like over time, but it does give us some flexibilities. And then as you move from core to global, our global series is, is purely a global or globally oriented strategy. I think we've got about two, maybe 3% um, exposure to Canada in there in, in aggregate and, and kind of the same risk buckets, income balanced and growth. So again, non-vol targeting for, for us, we are risk managers first and foremost. We're trying to generate the best sharp ratios um, and trying to reduce drawdown relative to our benchmark. And if you look at how we're positioned, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, we've been pretty risk on, actually probably the most risk on uh, this firm's ever been since the drawdown in March when we did our, our rebalance uh, on March 24th. Um, and we, we still have a very, very strong view uh, for markets going forward. So we are quite tilted to, to risk within equity and actually um, pretty heavy tilts globally and to emerging Asia as well. Cool. Cool. Now I guess getting more granular, which, which countries are you guys into now? So do you get their, your full on risk on or as much as you've ever been, but where, what, where are you guys placing the money? Yeah. Another great question. Um, we are very, very large holders of single country ETFs. I think they're, they're great tools for getting exposure to, to exactly what you want. Um, and I can rhyme off a whole bunch of them um, to be very targeted. You know, we, we are quoted in the press a lot um, talking about uh, Asia or emerging Asia and, and China particularly. So yes, we do have a couple of ETFs that do focus on China, whether it's China large cap or even China A shares. Uh, we've also done a few interesting plays around China that was actually um, kind of, uh, we're trying to figure out which countries could have benefited from uh, trade war frictions. Um, so we would have exposures to Taiwan, Vietnam, South Korea, um, but we'd also have exposures to uh, individual countries within Europe um, or even certain sectors in Europe. So for example, uh, one of our, our favorite plays right now is European financials, uh, simply because it's, it's, a, it's a particular segment of that marketplace that's highly depressed, has a terrific yield, um, and we do see some, some great growth rebound opportunities with the fiscal package that the, the, the EU is, is pushing through. Very cool. How about to you, uh, like you said, so you're, you're, uh, Rob, you're using uh, ETFs, you know, hard to be the benchmark if it is possible at all. Uh, maybe over to you, Steve, how do you choose managers? And um, obviously there's return, like you say, there's, you mentioned some of the other metrics, there's risk, there's, you know, sharp ratios and Sertinos and all these types of things. But how do you go about sourcing uh, managers to place your clients' money with um, uh, the, the kind of framework that you use? 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, there's obviously multiple layers to the process, right? And 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 you have to have a starting point first and foremost. So, so when you think about a a pure mandate um, that is multi-asset uh, versus something that is a little bit more strategic or or narrow in context, for instance, uh, you know, for instance, um, you know, market dislocation. Uh, opportunity, right? Which you know, you know th these types of, uh, of of opportunities, and maybe we'll talk to them a little bit later. They they weren't really available prior to March, um, and you had uh, you had assets uh, really globally that were you know, vol was compressed, and uh, you know, and and you really didn't have a lot of cheap assets that um, that could be monetized, um, you know, without you know using leverage and and other things like that. Um, you know, we we look at at uh, at you know, say adding a manager. Um, it's going to be different than than building a portfolio from the ground up, and and, and we build our, our portfolios based on the same philosophy. So it's not like every multi-asset portfolio is you're starting from square one. So how we get to uh, to a specific manager. Um, is uh, you know it's part analytical uh, and we we run heavy heavy quant just to mm -hmm. uh, once again to to see about persistence of return to measure statistical significance across you know I think we have sixty different risk metrics that we look at across you know multiple dimensions of time um, and really what we're we're looking for is we're looking for uh, managers that um, that you know not only don't correlate with the equity markets, uh, but also that don't correlate with one another. And, and that is the more challenging thing. And I think it's very hard to do it uh, if you're not doing it uh, systematically and, and, and with technology as your tools. Um, and, 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 and kind of once you have your core stable of jockeys, and, and for us, we're really then the qualitative aspect of is understanding uh, what risk exposures a manager is actually taking? Uh, we want to know how they blow up. Um, so it's not just about uh, the numbers, uh, you know, you know, being there in, in kind of a pure blo uh, black box format. Um, it's really actually understanding what the competitive advantage is there, and um, and knowing how you're going to be uh, on the wrong side, um, and then observing it. And we've obviously had you know March to uh, to test that out, um, and, you know, and find weak spots, uh, and, uh, and then make adjustments. And, and so building off of that portfolio now, uh, you know, how do you make things better? Um, you know, for us, uh, we generally don't look at managers in isolation, but we look at, you know, managers in groups. So for instance, uh, there's a, you know, big hedge fund conference, virtual hedge fund conference, uh, that, uh, you know, took place uh, back in October, about 300 different managers all looking to do, you know, video conferences with asset allocators and uh, they're all posting returns. And so, uh, you know, we ran all those returns through a model uh, that over a couple of hours, we had a, a lot of, uh, um, you know, a lot of outputs that we could look at so that we could narrow down, um, you know, who we might want to take a harder look at. Uh, and, you know, the, the first part was quant, uh, but then it was, you know, uh, with a qualitative overlay on top of it, meaning now starting to look at, okay, what do they actually do? And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, and what do we actually think about, you know, those risk exposures 
where do we actually want to spend our time? And, and, and part of that exercise too is, is, is what's the impact going to be on an overall portfolio? Because when you take on a, an active manager relationship, whatever it may be, and, and, you know, and I think for a, for a private uh, fund, it's going to be even more, but you're taking on a minimum uh, number of, of extra hours uh, and you want to basically make sure that you're not doing things that on the margin are going to leave you more or less in the same place. And so, um, so we had to basically use those filters to determine a, you know, who we were going to talk to. Um, and then, and then, you know, and then from there, narrowing it down to who we may uh, actually want to allocate money to. Cool. I got a question for um, actually structural diligence that you do uh, for, for Robert. Um, we're going to go to ops DD with stick with Steve for a bit. Like, how do you, how do you do the ops DD side? Do you kind of just, like, because everybody, I guess, is regulated. I mean, that's an easy one, but like, uh, and especially now in, in the COVID times. And then, uh, Rob, you can think about how you guys do like the structural diligence of choosing the ETFs or ETNs or all these things to, to express your view. But we'll, uh, we'll start with Steve here. Yeah, you know, uh, ops uh, DD is, is one of those things. Uh, it, it really uh, has to evolve for, for you over time as you, as you scale the reality is to really uh, grow it and, and do it the right way. Um, uh, you're going to have to probably work with a provider and uh, you know, as a, as an outsource partner. So uh, we, uh, we do a little bit of both uh, that internal intuitive. Uh, and then we're starting to, you know, working with a provider because mm. the, the things that the ODD providers do, uh, you know, are going to be very challenging to, to build internally yourself. And, and so I do think that this business is a lot about leveraging your providers, figuring out what you can do internally and, and do well. And then, uh, and then ultimately, um, you know, going out externally to, uh, to get the right level of support that you need to, um, to run and grow your business. Yeah. Yeah. You do as you develop this stuff uh, as well. So how about uh, to you, Rob, like when you're looking to express your view on the, on a different country or region, uh, is it pretty easy to choose the ETFs or are there, cause they all have the kind of like some of them do cash trades and do derivatives and there's ETNs out there. I'm not quite sure how some of these things uh, interact, but um, how, how do you guys go about choosing your, your path? Yeah. I mean, I, f- I feel like that's a pretty easy, easy question to, to answer and uh, I'll tackle that one in a second, but I, I wanted to, piggyback off what Steve's talking about with like operational due diligence, you know, I'm talking about DDQs. Like I, I give away DDQs, like, like Skittles, people ask for them all the time. We've been through, you know, dozens of different due diligence uh, kind of sessions. And you know, when they come in and kind of rip, rip your firm to, uh, to pieces, they want to know how it's not only just the investment management process, but then what's the backup and what's supporting it and how you run it. So yeah, I think, you know, from a, from a total firm perspective, you know, we really focused on what our what our core strength was, and that was investment management. You know, from there, we've we've developed a very very structured and rigid process that's very repeatable. Uh, and when we go through due diligence processes, people look at that, and we typically score very well. But it's not just uh, looking at the investment process because we do deal with a lot of providers. We deal with data providers, research providers, um, systems trading, CRM systems, back office, you name it. Uh, it is it is pretty in depth, so it, it goes beyond just just kind of what we're talking about here today to to operate your fund, and I and I feel like that that gets picked on a lot, you know, when going through very very deep due diligence sessions. But in terms of in terms of the ETFs, I mean, you know, we, we do have a pretty again structured and rigid process. 
uh, that we share with a lot of people. And I feel like it's, it's pretty common. I wouldn't say it's common knowledge, but you know, for us, there, there's some pretty easy, easy things to check off the box. Like clearly we like uh, index-based products. Um, we like the lar- larger liquid and lower cost. Um, there are, you know, people don't realize, or maybe investors that don't buy a lot of ETFs or have a ton of experience with ETFs don't realize is that there's a lot of due diligence that actually goes into the construction of the index of the ETF itself. And prior to, to joining uh, Forstrong, I spent the better part of a decade at BlackRock. So I, I do have a bit of experience in understanding the, the construction and creation redemption process of ETFs and why I'm, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're so confident in, in their uh, ability or, or use as an investment tool. Um, but beyond, again, beyond size, liquidity, and overall costs, what's really important to us is does a particular ETF have our desired exposure? Um, whether, regardless of how niche or how broad it is, what does that look like? And then we'll go through some basic uh, quantitative assessments and then qualitative. And some of the qualitative stuff could be uh, very, very straightforward is, you know, what does is, what is the overall tracking ratio look like against the benchmark? Um, what has their tax impact been from, from the, the trade team? You know, we've, I've talked a lot with people about using fully replicated versus synthetic or total return swap based ETFs. Um, it really comes down to, I guess, personal preference. Um, and then uh, some stuff that, that we really like is, you know, are these ETFs kind of stalwarts within the industry and used as institutional trading tools? And if they are, mm-hmm. several of these ETFs kick off sizable securities lending revenue, which not only covers a lot of your trading costs, but actually generates added alpha uh, within the portfolio. Like there are several ETFs out there where you can basically get that get the exposure um, and the, the SEC lending covers all, all the costs of the ETF plus some. So you kind of get index plus returns with certain ETFs. Wow. Um, so long as you have that, that ability to use SEC lending within your portfolios. So, hey Rob, do you um do you use mostly uh, U.S. listed ETFs or Canadian listed? Because um, I, I would be curious, um, you know your your thoughts on on the liquidity within Canada of of, of the of of, uh, of the ETF sector that you know where uh, particularly anything that's not um, you know a main you know, kind of a, you know, a, uh, a top, uh, you know, kind of holding. Yeah. So looking at our, at our book, I would say that we, we have crossed that threshold. The pendulum has swung pretty aggressively from our core portfolios to our global portfolios. So the greater component of our book is going to be us listed ETFs, but even within our global portfolios, we, we do manage currencies and we're not exactly um, bullish on the, on the U S dollar. So for several of our, our U S exposures and some of the basic ones, whether it be you know, S and P 500 or the broad benchmark, uh, for the broad fixed income benchmark in the U S we do use Canadian product, uh, that's wrapped that that's got a, um, a CAD hedge on it. And yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, that there are some exposures in Canada that, that, you know, well, for starters, it's definitely not as liquid as the U S but the, the majority of the ETFs in Canada, mm-hmm can get done what you need to get done. There are some pockets that are slightly more challenging and those can probably be found in the less liquid parts of the market, which would be more on the fixed income side or more on the credit side or more on the pref side. In terms of equities, I mean, the technology to trade these things is, is so lightning fast. And that's one of the reasons why we like it. Um, and and for, like for speaking to clients, like some of our portfolios, I think we have actually trimmed down the number of holdings. We used to have mid twenties and now I think we're probably high teens. Uh, in terms of number of, of ETF holdings. But if we wanted to completely rotate a portfolio, you know, two or three trades 
can drastically change the the, the view um, and the risk exposure with, within our portfolio. Whereas if we were holding underlying positions and enough of, of a particular asset class to try and trim away some idiosyncratic risk, it could be mm-hmm. hundreds of trades to get it done. So, yeah, I would imagine this. Uh, I would imagine the size that you're operating in, and uh, in, in especially your history as a firm, but also your your background prior to joining, right? Uh, is is that uh, you can find liquidity, you know, by just going to the market makers, and uh, you know, and even the um, you know, the ETF uh, you know providers, if 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 you absolutely needed it as well. Yeah, and as, um, the ET providers are very helpful, but we've got great relationships with you know the the top market makers in Canada, and when we need something done, we'll reach out to our friends, and you know, we definitely. I don't want to say that we, we rake them across the coals, but we put them in competition with one another so that they, they keep each other honest. <laughs> and uh, they're great. I mean, like uh, you, can, you can point to all the big desks, whether it be, you know, RBC, BMO National, CIBC, like they all trade amazingly. Um, and, and again, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's only a handful of desks in Canada that can get a lot of the stuff done at, at size. Um, and I forgot to mention TD, of course. I don't want to feel like I'm leaving you guys out. Sorry about that. But in the U.S., I mean, realistically, there's probably five desks for trading ETFs and they are, they're monsters and they have a different way of trading in the U S a lot of these big players, they are not uh, what, what I would call regulated financial institutions. These are portfolio managers that, that have the ability to take risk on your trades um, and are giving you liquidity based on risk. And it's I mean, sometimes can be incredibly good execution simply because they have the ability to leverage up yep. and take risk. And, you know, you mm. can talk about, you can talk and, and like I could talk for days about this stuff, about, you know, there's there's only liquidity in ETFs until it goes away or ETFs aren't liquid. And, you know, I'll give you a very, very basic principle. You know, ETFs are at, at least, at least as liquid as the underlying market that they represent, but they can, they could potentially be more liquid because the ETF does trade on exchange and there is a top layer. It's not going to be absolute. It will be exhaustive, but you can at least trade you know, in Canada, tens of millions. In the U.S., it's hundreds of millions, if not billions, of the ETF before you crack into the underlying. And then you're trading stuff that, that makes it more challenging. But again, for most equities, it's, it's crazy liquid. It's crazy liquid, crazy easy to get execution. For stuff that, that we're not good at is, you know, fixed income. I don't, I don't know many Canadian asset managers that, that say that they're the greatest at getting execution in U.S. bonds. Um, I, I think it's, you know, even the biggest institutions in Canada, I'd say, struggle with that. Because it's, you know, I don't want to say it's a gated community or it's an upstairs community in the U.S., but we get execution on uh, ETFs or fixed income ETFs in the U.S., whether it be, you know, treasuries or, or uh, investment grade or even high yield. That's just as good as any institution in the world through an ETF. So that's, that's kind of where I'd say the value add is for us. Well, that's great. Thanks. And uh, you said you're, you're pretty much all risk on. Uh, just wondering what's been happening over the last... Uh nine months uh and then looking forward you know before when we started doing these in april i think it was we were covid 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 and now it's just uh covid so um you know we got some vaccines coming out with uh, some efficacy which is nice uh so wh- what do you think where, where are the opportunities here where are the countries or the types of etfs that uh, that might make sense going forward yeah so th- this is a really fun conversation and i'll, I'll try and make it as short as i can because uh, it, it can get pretty deep you know, so we've taken a very, very big look at the last you know, 12 years post-financial crisis, and we don't think it's been really characterized by um, a, a growth market or, or an episode of growth. If anything, it's been more scarcity and austerity. 
And, and what you've seen from that is that companies that exhibit growth-like returns or growth-like opportunities have performed incredibly well uh, because it's kind of been there's been a scarcity of growth. So these valuations have done incredible. And we're, and we're speaking to some like the US large caps or even the, the US technology companies, they've done incredibly well. And coming out of the, the pandemic, you know, crisis always creates room for new policy. And we've seen this with, um, well, I guess we, we already had low interest rates coming into this, but we've seen this with absolute ridiculous stimulus packages, both fiscal and monetary. And what's amazing, yeah out of the pandemic and it took a pandemic to actually get decent fiscal packages or de decent fiscal policy from countries around the world because yeah, for the last 12 years you know the, the the bankers have been the ones that have been leading the charge and they're they basically were looking at governments like rates are zero or negative like what what else and we're buying everything in sight like what else do you want me to do here and now governments have said, okay, okay, it took a pandemic, we got to do this, we're stepping in, and we're, and we're, we're doing these massive fiscal packages. So we do think that these, this, this era of policy or loose policy will continue. Uh, and once you turn these taps on, it's very difficult to turn them off. And these things typically last years, not months or quarters. And what's happened is it's kind of restarted an opportunity for growth or a reset, where I think you're starting to see the rest of the market that you know, was struggling in, in times where growth was scarce, start to reflate and catch up to their peers that were getting outrageous valuations uh, because they, they had growth opportunity. So that's kind of our view. Um, I mean, there's, it's not the, the core piece of it, but you know, we are slowly, slowly approaching, you know, MMT like policies, um, which, which is kind of interesting. And we, we did a, a huge piece mm -hmm. recently about this and I'm actually prepping a podcast as well, but it's, it's very supportive of, of a growth like environment. And even looking at central banks, they're, they're welcoming and changing policies to welcome in, uh, inflation. So we do think that there's, there's room to go here. We do think that it's going to be very accommodative. Um, and and I, again, I think for a lot of people that are, that are kind of skittish at these levels, um, you know, think about you know, this was not a typical recession. Um, this, this, this was a, a pandemic or a, a health-led crisis. So if you think of all the stimulus that's been poured into markets now, now that we're starting to get, you know, yes, there's a second wave, we're starting to see vaccines coming out and we've learned to now live with this pandemic. Once, once we start to get the, the pandemic under control, you still have all of this stimulus to help support markets. And like, could you imagine if the stimulus happened and there wasn't a pandemic where how crazily high markets would be at present? So Again, I don't want to rely and say it's just on stimulus, but I think that there has been a bit of a growth regime shift, um, and I think it's it's going to continue on for quite some time. Well, what, what do you see going forward there, Steve? We want to bet on uh, you know on games that are you know in the third quarter. Um, you know, uh, now uh, I would say not the New England Patriots and Atlanta Falcons, but uh, but when you have a lot of visibility uh, into something. Uh, that's where we're going to, you know, add exposure in a market like this. Um, and, you know, so we like, um, you know, we're really starting to get more interested in, in the insurance link sector, uh, you know, pricing and reinsurance as capital has flowed out of that sector. There's some interesting things we're, we're, we're getting up the curve on, on settlements and, and longevity. And then, uh, but, but the, what I really like are, uh, I like markets that have, um, 
you know, structural catalyst. Uh, so, you know, these are strategies where, where you have a, you know, a defined maturity or some type of defined corporate event, you know, uh, you know, um, mandatory redemptions at NAV when you think about the, uh, the SPAC market, um, you know, various forms of, of, you know, capital structure and convertible structure, you know, arbitrage. So we really like those, those areas in the market. Um, uh, they became more attractively priced uh, in uh, March and April. Uh, some have come in and, and some are still pretty attractively uh, priced. There's some, uh, you know, I think there's some positive convexity exposure to vol. And then, and then there's the, 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 the last one, which we, we call, you know, kind of information edge and, and microstructure advantages. And, and really those are, are platforms that have a built-in edge uh, because of something like an ability to provide liquidity to a sector. So that's happening in a lot of areas of the fixed income markets, particularly uh, the sectors that have not benefited from central bank buying. Uh, where there are uh, a lot of opportunities, uh, if you can be patient, um, and then other uh, other markets where you see uh, you know trading against retail, uh, you see this uh, geographically as well as uh, once again within you know certain areas of the convert and, and the pref markets, um, you know, and 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 so you know any market where managers are trading against um, you know against you know kind of hamstrung buyers or or non-economic buyers, and, and and those could include you know central banks and and ETFs as well. So um, so we see a lot to like, uh, but um, it's going to require a lot of patience and discipline. Oh, very cool. And uh, how about how about for you, Rob? We'll give the last word to you, and then we'll we'll sign off here. Again, no crystal ball. Um, what we do what we do forecasts and projections. Again, it's not the core part of how we would allocate. Um, I think looking forward given everything I've just said in terms of kind of a growth regime shift, the continued stimulus and, and the, the potential opportunity for improve, improvements within the, the COVID vaccines or the spread of COVID, uh, we do think it's, it's gonna be a positive time for, uh, for risk on sentiment. Um, while we do think that there's still some opportunity within the US, we, we love parts of the world where you know, they, they potentially actually emerge from the pandemic uh, in better shape uh, than, than their global counterparts. And I'd point to, you know, emerging Asia. These are countries that did very well through the pandemic, uh, continued, uh, did input some stimulus, but didn't have to blow out their balance sheets the way that their developed uh, nations or developed counterparts had to. And if you take a look at uh, their economic footprint or economic growth uh, opportunities, uh, some of these are actually going to post positive GDP numbers this year. Uh, so it's, again, like we, it goes back to, to, to kind of core principles. We, we look at countries the same way that people look at companies. We try and figure out which countries have the opportunity to grow, um, grow their economic footprint. And, and then to dissect that even further is, you know, within that country, is there a sector that's driving it? And, and how do we benefit from that? Well, this is another one for the, for the books. Thank you both. Uh, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Rob, for being with us today. And uh, look forward to having, uh, having you, gents, on another podcast again sometime soon. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, James. My pleasure. Enjoyed it.